I learned something in the Army. I spent about 24 years in the Army, and I learned something in the Army. I learned that doctrine matters. Doctrine is a belief or a, uh, a set of beliefs that we teach. Those beliefs shape our, our values, and those beliefs and values shape our perception of the world. Our doctrine then shapes how we think and speak and act. And though, although I served uh, and was regularly trained in, in army doctrine for nearly 10 years, it wasn't until I was a captain and became an instructor that I really began to understand how important doctrine was to good order of an organization. I learned that doctrine drove what we taught and both, both why and how we taught it, to what standard we taught things. Doctrine drove what we trained, how we trained, how often it was, it was going to be tested. Long term, the Army's doctrine shaped how we lived from day to day as soldiers. It became the lens through which we perceived the world around us. And it provided guardrails that kept us from going over the proverbial cliff. Both in peacetime and in combat. And I would offer to you the last year and a half and some of the things that, that the military was asked to do and military leaders said, no, 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 that is not our purview. We don't do that here in our country. Really showed forth in what, why doctrine matters. I believe the apostle Paul actually understood that really, really well. He understood this concept well and it's why he is writing to Timothy in this first letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul desires to see the house of God be strong and vibrant. He wants to see the church honor and glorify God forever in the way they think, in the way they speak, and in the way they live. This is what Paul is, is saying as he begins to address Timothy in his first letter to him in, verses, in the first chapter in verses 3 through 17. And unlike most of Paul's letters that begin with a greeting and then encouragement, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 17 jumps right into, Timothy, this is what you need to do. Paul is writing to him, not as a stranger, not as to someone he doesn't know, but as a trusted battle captain who is on the front lines of war. He's giving instructions for the upcoming battles that Timothy is going to face. So with that in mind, let's read chapter 1 of Timothy, verse 3 through 17 and see what kind of instructions he begins with. Paul writes, beginning in verse 3, 
As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word today and through it, May you be encouraged this week to glorify and honor God in the way you think and speak and act wherever you may be. Now, from this passage today, I want to prove to you that Paul was right to instruct Timothy to stop people from teaching different doctrines. That is, doctrines that are different from what the apostles were teaching. Secondly, I, I want to encourage you to, to hold on to, to devote yourself to the one doctrine that is at the core of our faith, that God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners. And that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So let's begin looking at Paul's commands to Timothy to stop those who are teaching a different doctrine. In verse 3, Paul is urging Timothy to charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. Now, 
We don't know, truly from the letter, who those people are. But we do get a little inside view, maybe, into their character from verse 7. They are people who desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now that kind of leads me to believe that those who are teaching these doctrines are self-serving, being led by selfish ambitions, trying to gain a name for themselves or notoriety for themselves and not for Jesus. You know, in the transition period uh, between the Obama administration and, um, well, originally the Bush administration, the Obama administration, there was this huge changeover. I was working in D.C., and all these political appointees are sent out to do these different jobs. And so the whole team that you work with in the government suddenly switches over. In the Obama administration, the average person was about 26 years old that they uh, were these uh, political appointees. They didn't come with experience. They just didn't have it. It wasn't their fault. They just didn't have a level of experience to be working in public policy at a national, international, multinational level. But they came making a lot of strong assertions. This is how it has to be done. This is what we're going to do. This is what this needs to look like. And they spoke it as if it were fact. Honestly, in a year, we were in complete shambles. Public policy, international policy was a disaster. Not because they didn't mean well. In this case, they did mean well, some of them. A lot of them, though, were out just to make a name for themselves. And in two years, most of them were gone. Because they had just, they had just trashed things. They had made public policy or international policy a disaster. That can happen in our churches as well. That can happen, and that's what Paul is addressing here. He's addressing the need to have people who will stay faithful to the doctrines. The different doctrines they are teaching are negatively influencing people's understanding of salvation. They're they're focusing people on myths and genealogies, salvation by works of the law. These teachers are like wolves in sheep's clothing that, that Jesus had warned his disciples about who come in and try to devour the flock. They're leading people away from salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. They're pointing them to something else. Paul says they're teaching myths. He doesn't tell us what necessarily those myths are. But in the New Testament, when we get that that kind of language, they seem to fall into the categories of these traditional Jewish myths that were taught, silly and godless myths, or cleverly devised myths. That's the language that that the scripture gives us around those sorts of words. Each of those, in some way, denies an aspect of what Jesus did or who he was. The Jewish religion was filled with all sorts of mysticism. The mixing of Jewish practices with the occult. 
Various Jewish teachers or, or mystics had delved into numerology or astrology or angel worship, along with some really darker practices involving sacrifice. Those teachings and doctrines promised to give the people who followed them favor with God, a higher insight into the things of God or some special access to God. They all seek a way around Jesus as God's only means to salvation. Trying to put man in control of his own destiny and in truth of his own salvation. Paul understands that these, things, these teachers of different doctrines seek to cast doubt on the gospel and sufficiency of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It goes way back to Genesis 3. It's not a whole lot different. It's exactly what Satan did in the beginning. Cast doubt on God's goodness, his faithfulness, his love. Be your own savior. Be your own God. It started in the beginning. It hasn't changed. It's the stuff we get fed today if you listen to the different doctrines. Gospels that don't preach any true gospel. Paul also has in mind those who spend inordinate amounts of time on genealogies. Now, my wife, Enza, has recently been doing her genealogy through Ancestry.com. And it's really cool. Her DNA test that she took tells her that 96%, she is 96% Sicilian. She has always claimed that. I has always said she's an absolute liar. That's, that island has been invaded, overrun, owned by just about every nation in the world. Nonetheless, sure enough, her family is 96% Sicilian. And for the better part of four centuries, as best she can tell, her family has come from the town of Shefalu. Absolutely amazing. That is exactly what her father would have said and beat the table while he was saying it. All right. It's fascinating for me to see, though, how many family names are wrapped into her family. Like people I met as a teenager, all these different family names, like they're all cousins, even people they don't like. Our cousins, our aunts and uncles, generations back. It's really cool. It's been fascinating to see how family names have come down from generation to generation to generation. Yet, she doesn't look to that lineage and see it as a means of salvation. She doesn't see it as a means of righteousness. She doesn't look to those ancestors of the past and say, you went to the right places, did the right things, married the right people, and therefore I'm qualified to get to heaven. She doesn't see her lineage as making her deserving of God's favor. And that was at the core of Paul's issue with those who devoted themselves to these endless genealogies. They deserved God's favor because of their lineage. For some Jews, 
their work on genealogies was done to prove a pure bloodline. It was being taught in these different doctrines that if you could prove that purity, then there was a greater certainty, almost an absolute surety of God's favor, or that you were more deserving of your salvation than some other Gentile. Because you could trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham. Paul understood the error here. It denied that all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It denied that the wages of sin were death for everyone. It denied the need for God's mercy and grace to be extended to every one of us. It denied the need for salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Instead, the different doctrines, the genealogies, made you the center of attention. You were deserving, the one who deserved God's favor on you. It trusted in something other than Jesus. It trusted in the work of your ancestors to maintain a pure lineage. It was based on earned righteousness through that lineage. It denied faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ as the only means of your right standing with God. When I look back to my, my time as a lieutenant in the army, I, I think that I was half leader and, and truly half con artist. Often, when I set out to do things I had been told to do, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing or how to do them. But I do remember my dad once told me, look confident, stand up straight, Walk like a man and speak with confidence looking into people's eyes. That's what I did. I carried a clipboard everywhere I went. There was nothing on that clipboard. <laughs> it didn't matter. I walked ramrod straight. I walked with purpose everywhere I went. And sure enough, people actually followed my instructions. They didn't ask any questions. It was absolutely amazing. Unless, unless the person you were speaking to actually had some real understanding of what you were talking about. That did happen, yes. Then they called you out on it. Well, when it came to teaching the law, Paul understood he was an expert. He had been trained under Gamaliel. He was like the equivalent today of saying Bill Belichick and Tom Brady personally took you aside at age six and trained you to the time you were an adult ready to play football so that you were the best quarterback in the world. That's the kind of training that Paul had gotten. Paul was really good prior to his conversation. He, conversion. He was a, a rising star in the Pharisees. He knew the law, and he knew how to teach it, and he knew how to live it correctly in his generation. Paul had it going on. He wasn't, he wasn't half con artist. He was the man. So in verse 6, and seven, when Paul is calling out these guys who are pretending to be teachers of the law, he knows what he's talking about. 
And yet, as he points out to Timothy, although they don't know what they're talking about, they are saying it with confidence, like I used to. And because of that, people are following them. Paul's real issue with them, though, is that their teaching about the law is leading people away from God's means of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. These teachers of a different doctrine are teaching some form of works righteousness based on the law. And Paul doesn't deny the usefulness of the law. He tells Timothy, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The implication then is that those who are teaching a different doctrine are not using the law lawfully. In fact, they're twisting it in some way that is leading people astray. Paul says in verse 9 that the purpose of the law is that the law was laid down for the lawless and disobedient. The law was not laid down for the just. The law was laid down for the godless and the sinners. And then he lists a number of practices in verse 9 and 10 that break God's law. But then he extends that and says, Whatever is else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of God. What does Paul mean that the law is laid down for the lawless and the godless? Well, when you read through Paul's letters to the Romans or, or even in Galatians, you learn that the law was given so that people would know what sin was so that it would be clear to them that if they did things in the list above or that violated doctrine uh, uh, that, that was being taught, that they are violating the law of the Creator, the Creator God of all that exists. Sin existed, though, before the law was given. But the law, the law made it clear that people were trespassing God's commands. The law was meant to show people God's perfect standard and to show people their inability to reach and maintain that standard. The law was meant to highlight sin. It was meant to make it evident to everyone what sin was. In other words, there would be no excuse for sinners. Because the law was there to tell them that they were breaking that law. Paul also makes it clear. The law, when it is broken, comes with a price. It's the wrath of God. And the wrath of God and his judgment against sinners is completely just. Because he's established the standard. And he's the sovereign one, the creator of all things. It's his to set. God's law requires us to live perfectly holy lives. For us to be declared righteous before God in respect to the law, we must fulfill it perfectly. It's impossible, it's not doable. You can't do it. 
And if you think you're that good and can do it, then Jesus upped the ante in Matthew 5 and said, what? If you even think it. If you even thought something that resembled breaking that law, you've already broken it. And Paul then adds another little caveat somewhere in there, and he basically says, hey, by the way, if it goes against your conscience and you thought it might be a sin and you did it, then it's a sin. Dude, this is tough stuff. This is impossible. My thoughts alone condemn me. Day after day, moment by moment, 20 times before I got here today, I literally had to sit in the car and apologize to Enza because I had a bad attitude. I was snarky. I was unpleasant. I'm breaking the law. And I deserve judgment. And the judgment for breaking the law is death. Eternal damnation. That's, that's what it is. Under the law, I will never be declared just and right. In Philippians 3, 4 through 7, Paul describes himself prior to his conversion as a man who had believed that he had every reason for confidence under the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, note the lineage in there, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews. His genealogy was perfect. He could trace it probably all the way back to Abraham with no problem. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet in verse 13 from our passage today, he looks back and describes himself from that very same period and he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of God. The contrast in Paul's description isn't because he's having some identity crisis. He is not suffering from mental illness. Instead, it shows that Paul understands works righteousness. That is, the belief that you can earn your salvation by being obedient to the law. There were other teachings at the time, much like in our day, that suggested that God had this scale which he was going to weigh everything out in. You know, you just put your good deeds, your bad deeds up there, do enough good, you know, eh, it'll weigh out the bad, right? Yeah, we'll make it. The man upstairs understands. God's got my back. He's good. We're good. But that couldn't be the further from the truth of the gospel. Friends, one sin. Just one. And the balance goes boom. And it never comes back up. Do good for the rest of your life. Never break another sin. It's too late. Death. That's the judgment. There is no balance that's going to come out on your end under the law. No one will be declared just under the law. This seemingly conflicting picture of who Paul sees himself as is a direct result, though, of God's intervention in his life, holding up heaven's mirror to Paul so that he could see himself as God saw him. 
no longer as he just imagined himself to be. Paul's conflicting self-portrait is a direct result of the mercy of grace, the mercy and grace of God that overflowed towards him. The, the, the two different pictures of Paul reflect the work of God in Paul's life to save him. And it is the work of God through Jesus. And that is good news. It's the doctrines of God, the good news of God's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone that he is commending now to Timothy, those same things that saved him. That's what he's commending to Timothy to uphold. So let's take a moment and look at what that doctrine is that, that should be taught by teachers, what should be taught by the people who are devoted to teaching sound doctrine. The core doctrine we are to teach is found in verses 13 through 17. There we read that although Paul was a blasphemer, by the way, the same charge that was leveled by the Jews against Jesus before they put him to death, Paul, although he was a blasphemer, was offered mercy. In terms of punishment, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. That is, in this case, death for breaking God's law. In fact, the grace of the Lord overflowed towards Paul. And grace, grace is what? Grace is when instead of getting the death that he deserved, he doesn't get what he deserves. He gets life. Doesn't get death. He gets life. Now get this, all of this that Paul talks about is God's doing. When does that occur? It occurs in Paul's life when he is still a blasphemer, while he is still a persecutor, while he is still an insolent opponent. Think about it. When did Jesus come for the man named Saul? On the road to Damascus where he's ready to take down the church. While he is still an insolent opponent of God, Christ comes for him. What did Paul do to deserve mercy and grace? Nothing. Nothing. It is all an act of God and by the will of God. Even Paul's ability to believe to believe in Jesus for eternal life doesn't come out of Paul. And in fact, in Ephesians 2.8, what does he say? He says, no, even your faith is a gift from God. What have you got to do with your salvation? Absolutely nothing. God did it. Period. Not because you deserved it. Not because you owned it or earned it. But because he is merciful and gracious. Relentless and steadfast love. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Church, this is the gospel. This is love. God sent his son into the world to save sinners. Jesus came and lived in perfect accordance with the law, in thought, in word, and in deed. He never trespassed the law. He did what you and I could never do. 
And Jesus did that for us and in our place. He did that so that he could be the perfect, sinless sacrifice for us. Our sin, our trespasses, the things that carried a death sentence, he paid for. Our breaking of God's commands still carries a death sentence. And God must be just. It has to be paid for. If God did not give justice, he would not be God because he says he's just. He'd be a liar. And this whole thing is a sham. And we should all leave and go party someplace. We should be the people who die with the most toys. Seriously. In truth, if God were not just, he would also not be loving. Because it just isn't loving to let people get away with stuff. I guarantee you, any of you who have road rage, it's because somebody's getting away with something that they should not. Guaranteed. And it makes you angry. You want justice. God is perfect in his desire for justice. So Jesus, completely in line with God's plan, gave himself up to take God's justice for us. That is to die in our place. God took all of our trespass, all of our law breaking, all of our sin, and placed it on his son, Jesus. And then he judged Jesus, who, carrying our sin, stood before God and was found guilty. And then God put his son to death. So here's the good news. When God extends his mercy and grace to us so that we can believe that Jesus died for our sins so that we choose to follow him, choose as in he's given us the ability to even do that, an exchange takes place. Our sin, completely forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, and the perfect life that Jesus lived is given to us in accordance, the one that he lived in accordance with the law, that's given to us. Therefore, now, when we stand before God, he judges us as people who have perfectly followed the law, therefore declared perfectly righteous, therefore declared holy, justified in all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Through Jesus, through salvation, through Jesus Christ, we are no longer enemies of God. We are no longer recipients of wrath. But we are at peace with God. We're not only at peace with God, but we're, we're, we're brought into his family, called sons and daughters, beloved Then to seal the deal, God sends his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Oh my gosh, think of that for a second. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us does three things. First, the Holy Spirit is the seal of the promise that we are his, loved by him. 
Let me tell you, think, think of this for just a second. Remember when they would take the Ark of the Covenant? Remember, you'd take the Ark of the Covenant, that guy touches the Ark. Well, that's where the Spirit of God was dwelling at the time, right? So he touches the Ark, what happens to him? Boom, dead. What happens when the high priest, who's gone through all seven days of purification, consecrations, all these sacrifices have been made, for getting rid of his sin, he goes into the Holy of Holies. What's he got? He's got bells. He's got a rope just in case they miss something and they need to drag that sucker back out because he was unholy going before the throne of God where the Spirit of God dwelt. If you think for a second, if you're not sure, am I, am I saved? Am I truly declared holy and righteous? Is the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Because if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and you haven't, if you're not dead, like if you just didn't fall over and die when the Holy Spirit came into you, then yes, by God's grace, through mercy, salvation through Jesus Christ, yes, you are saved. You are declared holy and righteous because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And that's the seal and the sign of his promise. Second, the Holy Spirit works in us to help us live more like Jesus in his life. And in fact, the same power that enabled Jesus to do all of those miracles and live the perfect life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power, the same Holy Spirit that now dwells in you and gives you power to live and do those things today. Finally, the Holy Spirit is our promise of eternal life. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises you from the dead when he returns, gives you that brand new body. Yeah, baby, give it to me. I got to go get soldier shoulder surgery in a couple of months, and I cannot wait for this new body. This one hurts. A new, perfected, imperishable. And I get to dwell in the glory of God forever. And nobody has to tie a rope around my foot to drag me out. I get to dwell there. Not just once a year, forever. So in short, by God's mercy and grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God, from all of our sins, given power to live a new life for today, and given power and hope for the resurrection for the future so that we can live with eternal life with God through Jesus Christ. From start to finish, God's. This is the gospel. This is the doctrine of God that we proclaim and live by. These are the doctrines that Paul charged Timothy to hold tightly onto, to teach, and to stop other people from denying. Friends, if this is the doctrine that you have heard and believe, then we do not need to get lost in speculation. We do not need to get wrapped up in genealogies and myths in other so-called gospels that have no gospel in them. We can proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ with a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And if this is the doctrine that you have placed your hope in, then with full hearts, hearts full of love and joy, you along with Paul will proclaim the truth of verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you will allow me, 
in our final conclusion here. As we conclude this message, I, I would love to give you the opportunity to make that proclamation with Paul. Along with saints from 2,000 years who have been making that proclamation. So if you believe, as Paul did, that this statement is trustworthy and true, I want to invite you to stand. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to stand. And we'll say together that confession of faith as a local body of believers right here at King of Grace. Paul says, and we agree and say, I believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you.